So, three things. A widescreen iPod with touch controls, a revolutionary mobile phone, and a breakthrough internet communications device. An iPod, a phone, <laughs> and an internet communicator. An iPod, <laughs> a phone. Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, today Apple is going to reinvent the phone. And here it is. I feel like those words have become so famous in the history of technology that I imagine a fairly large percentage of listeners to this episode probably have them memorized. That, of course, was Steve Jobs speaking 10 years ago this Monday, January 9th, on stage announcing the iPhone to the world. Welcome to a special episode of the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the birth of the iPhone, and this episode is going to be the story of that moment and the history of that device, which can rightfully take a place alongside the original Macintosh, the first IBM PC, the Apple One, the Altair 8800, the PDP-8, the IBM System 360, a bunch of others that have brought computing into everyday life. At the beginning of 2007, Apple was a company on a winning streak. Its flagship Mac line of computers was growing in market share, at the expense of traditional PCs. The iPod, which had been introduced a little over five years earlier, had transformed Apple from a niche company that made high-end personal computers into a company that made the most sought-after gadgets in the world. And yet, despite this success, few, outside of Apple itself at least, would have been brave enough to predict that Apple was about to release the gadget to end all gadgets, the most transformative and most personal computer of the modern era. Some will remember that Apple was famously, or infamously, one of the pioneers of handheld computing. The Newton message pad was the first PDA, a term Apple coined by the way, to generate broad mainstream appeal when it was released in 1993. The Newton had many details that eerily echoed what would come later. The device measured 4.5 by 7 inches, had a touchscreen in lieu of a physical keyboard, was priced at $699, which is about $1,129 when adjusted for inflation, sported a 32-bit ARM CPU, and even had a Siri-like feature called the Newton Assistant. But the Newton was released in 1993, of course, 
So this was a time when the web had not yet gone mainstream. There was no such thing as ubiquitous cellular data networks or even Wi-Fi hotspots. And crucially, multi-touch technology was not available. Users of the Newton interacted with the touchscreen via a stylus, not their fingertips, and they input information via text-based handwriting recognition software. Problem was, the handwriting recognition wasn't all it was cracked up to be, as the comic strip Doonesbury and the TV show The Simpsons lampooned endlessly. The Newton became a joke and sold less than 50,000 units in its first four months. A few years later, when Steve Jobs returned to Apple and famously streamlined the company's bloated product line, the Newton was discontinued. But in the meantime, that little device had pioneered the PDA market that Palm and others would exploit to great success in the later 90s, and it would set the functional template for smartphones later in the 2000s. This experience beyond traditional computers, disastrous as it may have been for the company, nonetheless planted some residual ideas within Apple and within its corporate DNA. After Steve Jobs returned to save the company from extinction, memories of pocket-sized devices resurfaced to take Apple into a new era. The iMac might have been the product that saved Apple as a company, but the iPod was the product that transformed it. Released in 2001, the iPod reached beyond Apple loyalists and became a bona fide mainstream sensation. Eventually, the iPod was responsible for 45% of Apple's total revenue. It also captured 70% of the MP3 player market. And this is something that I think has been a bit glossed over in recent histories of the company, but Stop for a minute and imagine how momentous a change the iPod engendered within Apple itself. After all, this was a company that for nearly 30 years had been a personal computer company. But the blue sky thinking that allowed Apple to suddenly, out of the blue, make a standalone MP3 player, to enter a mature market as an outsider and believe that it could dominate that market, also engendered the sort of fearlessness that made it possible to break with other long-standing Apple shibboleths. The iPod eventually worked with Windows machines, even at the risk of cannibalizing Mac sales, and iTunes eventually worked with Windows machines as well. Apple had made a Windows app. As Phil Schiller told Walter Isaacson in his Steve Jobs biography, quote, we felt we should be in the music player business, not just the Mac business. It was this conceptual leap, this strategic bravery, just as much as a penchant for good design and reliable manufacturing, that would be responsible for Apple's eventual success in the mid-2000s. Because once Apple was no longer just a computer company, it could suddenly be whatever it wanted to be. Apple was suddenly a consumer electronics juggernaut. Like the Sony Walkman before it, the iPod put a trend-setting device into almost everyone's pocket. 
And Steve Jobs had long admired the power that Sony had wielded over the electronics and media industries in the 1970s and 80s. And almost overnight, Apple seemed to be enjoying a similar measure of power. This industrial muscle was proven conclusively when Jobs was able to corral the major music companies into the iTunes store. The leverage of a dominant product like the iPod allowed Apple to transform, and some say take over, an entire ancillary industry. Flush with this sort of success, the brain trust at Apple began to wonder if maybe there were other industries that they might be able to enter, take over, or disrupt. According to Phil Schiller, the iPod, quote, really changed everybody's view of Apple, both inside and outside the company. Apple began to wonder if it might be able to apply its secret sauce of product development and design to other sorts of products. They considered making Apple cameras, even at this early date, an Apple car, quote, crazy stuff, Schiller would remember later. In many ways, this blue sky mentality caused history to sort of repeat itself. Back in the 1980s, the fathers of the Newton had been motivated by a desire to anticipate the next evolutionary step in computing. Steve Sackerman, Jean-Louis Gasset, and then Apple CEO John Scully had imagined a world beyond keyboards and beyond mice. In short, a world of handheld computing. And now, 15 years later, the new and, in the case of Jobs, returned Apple leadership found itself imagining a similar future. Scott Forstall remembered, quote, In 2003... We had built all these great Macs and laptops, and we started asking ourselves what comes next. One thought we settled on was a tablet. We settled pretty quickly if we could investigate doing that with a touchscreen, so we started investigating and building prototypes. At the same time, Steve Jobs had an eye not on the future of computing, but also on the future of the iPod itself. By the mid-2000s, it wasn't just MP3 players that were bulging people's pockets. Cell phones were reaching ubiquity for the first time as well. Apple board member Art Levinson told Walter Isaacson, quote, He, he means Steve Jobs, was always obsessing about what could mess us up. And apparently Jobs had decided that, quote, The device that can eat our lunch is the cell phone. It was clear to everyone that consumers would prefer one single converged device as opposed to carrying around several. And since Jobs was never one to milk a cash cow into oblivion, he was eager to create some new version of an iPod slash phone before a competitor beat him to it. And he was eager to do that even if it meant making the iPod itself obsolete. According to Tony Fidel, Apple was thinking, quote, how do we make sure that we are at least competitive so that anyone who is carrying a cell phone can get iTunes music? Because if we lost iTunes, we would have lost the whole formula. As Jobs himself told Walt Mossberg at the 2010 All Things D conference, quote, I had this idea about having a glass display, a multi-touch display you could type on. 
I asked our people about it. And six months later, they came back with this amazing display. And I gave it to one of our really brilliant UI guys. He then got internal scrolling working and some other things. And I thought, my God, we can build a phone with this. So we put the tablet aside, which was the original prototype, and we went to work on a phone. And so a Skunkworks tablet project suddenly became a Skunkworks phone project. By 2003-2004, in the form of various initiatives, Apple was beginning to get hard at work on some sort of a portable device that was intended to merge the iPod with a phone and possibly more in order to become an all-encompassing unitary device. As many commentators and historians have noted, it was not exactly like Steve Jobs just snapped his fingers and said, let there be iPhone, and it became real. Instead, the development process that led to January 2007 was actually fairly convoluted and encompassed several different initiatives, as many as five separate projects, according to some accounts, before the competing ideas and prototypes fell by the wayside and the final solution was settled upon. Initially, the idea had been fairly simple. Just add phone functionality to an iPod and or add iTunes software to an existing cell phone. As many online bloggers would guess as they later posted speculative mock-ups of what the eventual iPhone would look like, early prototypes delivered by Tony Fidel's iPod team did indeed feature an iPod-like device with added-on communication features. The problem was that the vaunted click wheel that the iPod was so famous for, while it was a brilliant UI hack when selecting songs from a list of albums, was not exactly ideal for dialing a phone, much less inputting things like text messages. Fidel would remember later, quote, We were having a lot of problems using the wheel, especially in getting it to dial phone numbers. It was cumbersome. A second prototype focused more on being a video player, or what at the time was called a PMP, a portable media player. The problem in this case was delivery of said media. In those pre-3G wireless days, the bandwidth simply wasn't available to accommodate the delivery of video. At the same time, Apple's internal airport wireless team was tasked with investigating cellular technology in general. And this turned out to be a dead end because, well, of course, cellular technology is drastically different than Wi-Fi. And so the decision was made to reach out to existing phone manufacturers and see what Apple could learn from them. The idea of purchasing Motorola outright was actually briefly considered in 2003, a notion that actually makes some sort of synergistic sense if you think about it, since Apple had a long history with that company. Throughout the 90s, Motorola supplied the CPUs for Apple's portfolio of Macs, and what was more, in the early 2000s, Motorola actually had the hit lineup of cell phones in the form of its popular Razors. So Apple could, at this point, potentially partner with a company that knew how to design slick, thin, sexy, 
handsets. As Eddie Q would recount in the book Becoming Steve Jobs, quote, We looked around the industry, and in early 2004, we settled on working with Motorola, which, at the time, completely dominated the handset business with its Razer flip phone. Everybody had one. But the main motivation for Apple's eventual dalliance with Motorola came from Apple's acute reluctance to do business with the major cell phone carriers. At the time, cellular hardware was almost an afterthought in the mobile industry. Handsets were virtually feature indistinguishable. They were offered free on contract, mostly in order to sign users up to expensive long-term contracts. The value was seen in selling minutes, not selling sexy devices. The carriers dictated what the phones could do, even how they could look, and obviously these were not compromises that Apple would ever be willing to make for a device that it wanted to put its own name on. At the D conference in 2004, Jobs himself said, quote, We visited with the handset manufacturers and we even talked to the Treo guys. They tell us horror stories about working with the carriers. So, working with Motorola seemed to offer something of a compromise solution. Apple would merely license iTunes software, Motorola would design the hardware, and most importantly, it would also deal with the carriers. Tony Fidel would remember, quote, we thought that if consumers chose to get a music phone instead of an iPod, at least they would be using iTunes. Hey guys, sorry to break in here with a post-release correction, but uh, I'm about to describe the phone that Apple made with Motorola, and I'm going to pronounce it as the Roker. Um, since I released this episode this morning, eagle-eared listeners have pointed out that it wasn't pronounced the Roker, it was the Motorola Rocker, which, now that this has been pointed out to me, makes a ton more sense. It's one of the odder uh, mistakes I've made over the 127 episodes of the show, but um, all I can say is, in my head, for a decade now, it was always the Roker, not the Rocker. But you're going to hear Roker every time I pronounce it that way. It's the Rocker. Sorry. Apple probably thought that by partnering with Motorola, it would probably be putting iTunes on the sleek and sexy Razor. Instead, it ended up with the clunky, chunky Roker. Motorola took 18 months to deliver the Roker, a candy bar-style device, and it was fatally, almost ridiculously limited. The Roker could only hold 100 songs, a restriction that either the Motorola engineers arrived at randomly or Apple insisted on in order to protect its iTunes franchise, but seemingly was meaningless because the storage capacity of the device could have allowed for much, much more. And even though the device boasted internet access, iTunes purchases could not be made over the air. You had to plug your phone into your computer to load it with music. When Jobs unveiled the Roker in September 2005, he could barely hide his contempt for the device. Whether on purpose or subconsciously, 
the demonstration of the Roker was even fumbled by Jobs, something that he did not typically do. So I've got a call, so let me answer the call. Hello? Hey, Steve, this is Eddie. Hi, Eddie. Hey, I'm uh, kind of in the middle of something right now. Okay. Uh, Give me a call back later. Yeah, I'll talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. So I go there, and I just resume my music right back to where it was. Well, I was supposed to resume my music right back to where it was. I hit the wrong button. But... You can resume your music right back to where it was if you hit the right button. According to the book Digital Wars, Apple, Google, Microsoft, and the battle for the Internet, within a month of going on sale, returns of the Roker were six times the industry average for a new device. Wired Magazine famously asked of the Roker, You call this the phone of the future? The Roker fiasco was a puzzling detour for Apple, a company that famously likes to control the entire user experience from hardware to software. This dead end can only be explained by Jobs' continued reluctance to deal with the cellular carriers firsthand. At the 2003 All Things D conference, Jobs said, quote, We're not the greatest at selling to the Fortune 500, and there are 500 of them. In the cell phone business, there are five. We don't even like dealing with 500 companies. You can imagine what we thought about dealing with five. Jobs' disgust was so pronounced, Apple began seriously considering jumping into the MVNO business, buying wireless bandwidth wholesale, and then selling cellular service under its own brand. This would have cut the carriers out of the equation entirely, and allow Apple to control the entire user experience. At the time, Apple was rapidly expanding its retail store footprint, so it theoretically could have managed a nationwide sales and service rollout. It could have built a phone that would function on its own network, and it wouldn't have to go begging to the carriers simply for the privilege of adding features and services. And it was during this exploration of an Apple wireless idea that the final pieces of the iPhone as we know it fell into place. The Starcross Roker had been developed in partnership with the wireless carrier Singular, soon to become AT&T after a series of mergers. At the time, Singular was struggling to compete with the erstwhile industry leader Verizon, and this was just at the precise moment that 3G cellular service was beginning to roll out nationwide. 3G had been designed to deliver wireless data at close to broadband speeds. The cellular carriers knew that data was the growth product of their future. But, hard as this is to imagine in 2017, when actually making calls is almost an afterthought when it comes to how we use our devices, the carriers were having a hard time actually getting consumers to sign up to get internet on their cell phones. While the Roker was being developed, Singular executives tried to convince Steve Jobs to drop his MVNO plans and instead create an Apple phone exclusively for their network. Singular's motives were mostly defensive. 
the carrier feared that if Apple were to launch a competing carrier service, they would probably underprice wireless plans in order to encourage the hardware sales that was Apple's bread and butter. This would, of course, commoditize data plans before they even had a chance to catch on. At first, Jobs refused even to listen to Singular's entreaties, but then the disaster of the Roker began to change his thinking. A Singular executive by the name of Jim Ryan has described his negotiations in the book Dogfight. Quote, Jobs hated the idea of a deal with us at first. Hated it. He was thinking that he didn't want a carrier like us anywhere near his brand. What he hadn't thought through was the reality of just how damn hard it is to deliver mobile service. Indeed, the customer service, logistical, technical, and reliability issues of operating a nationwide cellular network were, of course, something that Apple had zero experience with. And so Jim Ryan emphasized these potential headaches to Jobs. Quote, Funny as it sounds, that was one of our big selling points to Apple. Every time the phone drops a call, you blame the carrier. But every time something good happens, you thank Apple. At the same time Singular was trying to sell Jobs on the idea of making an Apple phone internally, a handful of Apple executives especially Mike Bell and Steve Sackelman, were making the exact same argument within Apple. Bell recounts in the book Dogfight, quote, I argued with Steve Jobs for a couple of months and finally sent him an email on November 7th, 2004. I said, Steve, I know you don't want to do a phone, but here's why we should. Johnny Ive has some really cool designs for the future iPods that no one has seen. We ought to take one of those, put some Apple software around it, and make a phone out of it ourselves instead of putting our stuff on other people's phones. He, Jobs, calls me back about a half an hour later, and we talk for two hours, and he finally says, okay, I think we should just do it. Apple ended up dealing with AT&T Singular because... AT&T Singular was eager for a differentiator. Eddie Q, who was the one actually tasked with negotiating with the carriers, remembered in the book Becoming Steve Jobs, quote, We actually knew Verizon better than we knew AT&T. But Verizon thought Cellular was their playground, sort of like, you're going to play the game by our rules. When we went to see AT&T, we really liked them. You could tell they were hungrier and wanted to show what they were capable of. The deal that Apple would cut with Singular slash AT&T would take about a year to finalize, but in the end it alleviated almost all of Jobs' concerns. In exchange for an exclusive right to an Apple phone on their network, AT&T would grant Apple carte blanche to design the phone as Steve Jobs saw fit. It would be completely Apple-branded, and AT&T would have no say in the pricing, the features, or even the services that the phone offered. As icing on the cake, Apple would get a share of the monthly cellular data payments that users would obviously have to cough up for in order to use the device. An Apple phone suddenly seemed like it could become a reality. 
And at this point, that was where the difficulty really began. According to various accounts, Apple produced at least three, but possibly as many as six, and in one account, hundreds of prototypes of a phone. Again, the earliest iterations grew out of the company's experience producing iPods. But one idea, that backburnered tablet project, the multi-touch project, the giant screen project, kept coming to the fore. Joshua Stricken, an Apple engineer, recalls, quote, The story was that Steve wanted a device that he could use to read email while on the toilet. That was the extent of the product spec. Jobs had originally wanted a simple slate and wanted interaction to be done via touch input. The problem was capacitive multi-touch had never been done on a consumer device before, much less on a device small enough to function as a phone. Part of this problem was solved by the acquisition of a company called Fingerworks, which had moved capacitive technology forward quite considerably. And multi-touch was championed by an Apple engineer named Greg Christie, who had worked on the Newton all those years ago. Christie knew that multi-touch would allow for the entire device to basically be a screen. This would empower the software to make up for any hardware deficiencies. A keyboard could spring up only when the user needed it. Photos could be manipulated and displayed at full brilliance. Web browsing could be made to approximate a desktop experience. And Apple could get closer to Fidel's video player device now that Apple was partnering with a carrier committed to rolling out 3G Spectrum. So the problems of bandwidth would soon not be an issue. Over the course of 2004... Christie worked with another engineer named Boz Ording to create a demo that showcased what multi-touch was capable of. Head designer Johnny Ive described their prototype system as the, quote, jumbotron because it projected a video screen on a touch-sensitive surface the size of a table. Ive was especially impressed with the demo that Ording and Christie put together and arranged to show it to Jobs. But Jobs was not impressed. As Ive would remember in Dogfight, quote, he was completely underwhelmed. He didn't see that there was any value to this idea, and I felt really stupid because I had perceived it as a very big thing. But then, as often happened over Steve Jobs's long career, an idea that he initially rejected as brain dead grew on him until he himself began to champion it to others as a solution to all their problems. By mid-2005, Jobs himself was evangelizing the touch features that we're familiar with today, things like pinch-to-zoom and inertial scrolling, and as Tony Fidel recalled, quote, he said, Tony, come over here. Here's something we're working on. What do you think? Do you think we could make a phone out of this? In the later Apple-Samsung trial, Scott Forstall testified, I'll never forget we took that tablet and built a small scrolling list. On the tablet, we were doing pinch-to-zoom, so we built a small list to scroll on contacts, and then you could tap on it to call. 
we realized that a touchscreen that was the size that would fit in your pocket would be perfect for the phone. iPod guru Tony Fidel was skeptical that it could all be made to work for any number of practical reasons. He remembered later, quote, You had to go to LCD vendors who knew how to embed technology like this in glass. You had to find time on their line. And then you had to come up with compensation and calibrating algorithms to keep the pixel electronics from generating all kinds of noise in the touchscreen. It was a whole project just to make the touchscreen device. We tried two or three ways of actually making the touchscreen until we could make one in enough volume that would work. But Jobs had been won over. He told Fidel, quote, You figured out how to blend music and a phone. Now go figure out how to add this multi-touch interface to the screen of a phone. A really cool, really small, really thin phone. The project that would become the iPhone was codenamed Project Purple. But even as the goal was finalized, the nature of the end product was up in the air until the very last minute. Apple's chief hardware executive, John Rubenstein, remembered later, quote, I was actually pushing to do two sizes, to have a regular iPhone and an iPhone mini, like we had with the iPod. I thought one could be a smartphone and one could be a dumber phone. But we never got a lot of traction on the small one, and in order to do one of these projects, you really need to put all your wood behind one arrow. For his part, Steve Jobs wanted the phone to run on a modified version of OS X, but fitting that much code onto a phone chip proved difficult. So, Scott Forstall was tasked with putting OS X on a severe diet, while Fidel was essentially told to simply expand the iPod OS. Forstall's team ended up winning the eventual software bake-off, And the end result, iOS, would eventually be a tenth the size of OS X, while still sharing plenty of the desktop OS's traits. With Steve Jobs' famous obsession with secrecy, when Forstall was eventually given his orders to begin development of iOS, he was told he couldn't hire anyone from outside the company to work on this part of the project but he was nonetheless free to pick liberally from internal talent. Forstall didn't tell recruits what exactly they would be working on. He only divulged that they would be expected to, quote, give up untold nights and weekends, and that you will work harder than you've ever worked in your life. As eventually became standard practice at Apple, the iPhone team was segregated even from other Apple employees. Forstall would recall... The team took over one of Apple's Cupertino buildings and locked it down. It started with a single floor, with badge readers and cameras, and in some cases, even workers on the team would have to show their badges five or six times. The floor that the iPhone was developed on became known as the Purple Dorm. As Forstall would testify later, quote, We put a sign on over the front door of the iPhone building that said, Fight Club. Because the first rule of Fight Club is that you don't talk about Fight Club. Again, Forstall, quote, When creating the iPhone, there were so many completely unresolved problems that we had to tackle. Every single part of the design had to be rethought for touch. On a screen so small, allowances had to be made for imprecise gestures. And 
on a device with only a single pane for input, innovations like slide to unlock had to be invented just to make it functional in a new user paradigm. One of the biggest software problems was the virtual keyboard. It was one thing to implement gestures and swipes and pinch to zoom on a three and a half inch screen, but it was another thing entirely to type on a tiny keyboard making up about one third of that real estate. In the book Dogfight, an anonymous Apple executive recounted, quote, everyone was concerned about touching on something that doesn't have any physical feedback. Perfecting the keyboard was a, quote, make or break kind of thing for the device. There were plenty of other issues to tweak across the whole spectrum of the software. For instance, if you tried to type the letter E, it tended to trigger a range of other letters instead. And there was a significant lag between a virtual keystroke and a given letter actually appearing on screen. But solving software problems can sometimes trigger software innovations as well. Scott Forrestal himself came up with the idea of the double tap to zoom in on text when browsing the web. Forrestal would recall, quote, The team went back and worked really hard to figure out how to do that. But if getting the software to work was a challenge, the hardware was even more so. It didn't help that the engineers working on the hardware were forbidden from even seeing the software that they were ostensibly designing for. The biggest issue was simply that Apple hadn't dealt with the basic realities of a cell phone design before. The team had to take a crash course in basic physics, in radio technology, in reception and broadcast. About a dozen radio frequency simulators were purchased. To determine the radiation that these new devices were spitting out, engineers built scale models of the human head to test against. Apple also had no experience with the rigorous testing required to A, function on AT&T's cellular network, and B, pass FCC muster. Handset manufacturers usually left this sort of process to the carriers to sort out, since they were the ones that knew their networks the best. But again, Apple was keeping AT&T at arm's length. And so the iPhone team instigated an intensive dogfooding protocol among its employees. As an Apple engineer would recall, it wasn't carry an iPhone and a Treo, it was carry an iPhone and live on it. This was coupled with a signal testing regimen that was nothing if not ad hoc. Often, testing signal was nothing more than driving the phones around in cars and finding dead spots and then diagnosing dropped calls on the spot. An engineer named Shuvo Chatterjee would remember, quote, Sometimes it would be, Scott Forrestal has a call dropped. Go figure out what's going on. So we'd drive by his house and try to figure out if there was a dead zone. That happened with Steve, too. There were a couple of times where we drove around their houses enough that we worried that neighbors would call the police. One intermediate prototype that was championed by Jobs and Johnny Ive was based off an unreleased iPod design that Ive had developed previously. This particular device was made of brushed aluminum, of course, but in this case the master designer had to bow to the laws of nature. Apple engineer Phil Kearney recalled, quote, 
I and Ruben Caballero, who is an antenna expert, had to go up to the boardroom and explain to Steve and Ive that you cannot put radio waves through metal. And it was not an easy explanation. Most of the designers are artists. The last science class they took was in eighth grade, but they have a lot of power at Apple, so they asked, why can't we just make a little seam for the radio waves to escape through? And you have to explain to them why you just can't. In another famous case, though, Steve Jobs' exacting demands won out to the eventual benefit of the final product. The screen of the phone was originally supposed to be composed of the same plastic that iPod screens were made of. But after spending a day in Jobs' pocket, one prototype unit suffered from deep and permanent scratches thanks to his car keys. And so on a dime, Jobs switched the screen from plastic to Corning Gorilla Glass, even talking Corning into converting an entire factory in Harrisburg, Kentucky, to produce the quantities of glass that Apple needed. This actually complicated things for the hardware team, since the multi-touch sensors now had to be embedded in glass, and glass was an entirely different proposition from embedding in plastic. This is a day I've been looking forward to for two and a half years. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. And Apple has been, well, first of all, one's very fortunate if you get to work on just one of these in your career. Apple's been very fortunate. It's been able to introduce a few of these into the world. The iPhone was announced a full six months before it eventually went on sale. At the time of its unveiling, the device was nowhere near ready to be shown to the public. For example, there were only about 100 iPhones that even existed by the time of the announcement, and they were all in various stages of prototype. The software was still in a transitional phase, and the phone's cell radio didn't communicate reliably with the processor. The radio problem on the cellular antenna was so desperate that Apple briefly dropped its secrecy obsession and flew in engineers from Samsung, who made the processor, and Infineon, who made the cell radio, in order to figure things out. Demoing a half-baked product was not how Steve Jobs was used to doing business, but his hand was actually forced a bit. For one thing, the fact that an Apple phone was coming was actually common knowledge in the industry by this point. Reviewers, bloggers, and reporters had whipped up an incredible frenzy of excitement over what they would eventually dub the Jesus phone. Another consideration at the time was the fact that early January 2007 was the annual Macworld event, and Steve Jobs had given the keynote at every Macworld since he had returned to Apple. If Jobs took the stage and only announced the availability of, say, a new Apple TV, people would have known that something had gone seriously wrong with the Jesus phone. And finally, there were serious contractual concerns involved. AT&T had, of course, been left mostly in the dark over the course of the iPhone's development, 
and they had only seen one of the prototypes a few weeks previously. So if the iPhone didn't launch that week, AT&T could theoretically have backed out of the entire deal. So when Apple took over the Moscone Center in San Francisco to host the launch event, tensions were running high. A lone Apple employee was tasked with driving all 24 of the demo units in the trunk of his Acura and delivering them to San Francisco. He was followed by a second car piloted by Apple security, but the engineer wondered what would happen if he had gotten into an accident and the demos were all destroyed. What then? Jobs himself approved the list of people who could participate in the preparations, and more than a dozen security guards were on post 24 hours a day outside the center. Jobs even originally decreed that all outside contractors hired to staff the event would have to sleep in the building the night before so that no details could leak out. Cooler heads eventually talked him out of it. Jobs rehearsed his presentation for six solid days, but at the final hour, the team still couldn't get the phone to behave through an entire run-through. Sometimes it lost internet connection, sometimes the calls wouldn't go through, and sometimes the phone just shut down. Andy Grignon, the senior radio engineer for the iPhone, was involved in the preparations for the iPhone launch. Quote, it quickly got very uncomfortable. Very rarely did I see him, Jobs, become completely unglued. It happened, but mostly he just looked at you and very quickly said in a very loud and stern voice, you are fucking up my company. Or, if we fail, it'll be because of you. Obviously, those scenes from the Steve Jobs biopic didn't just come from Aaron Sorkin's imagination. Eventually, the engineers identified what they called a golden path, a specific set of demo actions that Jobs could perform in a specific order that afforded them the best chance of the phone actually making it through the presentation without a glitch. As an example, they felt that Jobs could send an email and then surf the web, but if he reversed the order, the phone might crash. Guignan and the other engineers masked the Wi-Fi that Jobs would be using on stage so that the audience members couldn't jump on the same signal. And AT&T brought in a portable cell tower to make sure that Jobs would have at least a strongish signal when he tried to demo his phone call. But just to be on the safe side, engineers also hard-coded all the demo units to display five bars of signal strength, whether that actually happened to be true or not. One more motivation for going through with the announcement, come hell or high water, was the fact that the annual Consumer Electronics Show was taking place at the exact same time. Jobs intended to steal attention and headlines from whatever was being announced in Las Vegas. And sure enough, on January 6th, an army of reporters, bloggers, journalists, and critics dutifully boarded planes at McCarran Airport, left CES, and flew back to San Francisco to see what Jobs had up his sleeve. In the audience the day of that announcement were Andy Hertzfeld, Bill Atkinson, and Steve Wozniak. Just as with the iMac launch, 
Steve Jobs made sure that the original Macintosh team was present to bear witness to history being made. Eddie Q would later remember, quote, iPhone was the culmination of everything for Steve, and of everything that I had learned. It was the only event I took my wife and kids to because, as I told them, in your lifetime, this might be the biggest thing ever. Because you could feel it. You just knew that this was huge. Somehow, the day of, the iPhone launch went on without a hiccup. Watching the video now, Jobs is masterful at the very height of his powers as a showman. You can almost feel him simultaneously stoking and feeding off of the energy from the crowd. It's almost as if Jobs can't believe what he's demoing at the exact same time that the audience can't believe what they're seeing. The team that had put the demo together celebrated by getting wasted. As the antenna engineer Grignon recalled, quote, It was the best demo any of us had ever seen. And the rest of the day turned out to just be a shit show for the entire iPhone team. We just spent the entire rest of the day drinking in the city. It was a mess, but it was great. The original iPhone was based on the Purple 2 prototype, which was codenamed M68, with an eventual device number 11. It had a 3.5-inch LCD screen at 320 by 480 and 163 PPI, a quad-band 2G edge data radio, 802.11 B and G Wi-Fi, Bluetooth 2.0, and a 2-megapixel camera. It had an ARM-based processor, a Power VR MBX Lite 3D graphics chip, it came with 128 megabytes of RAM, and storage came in two flavors, 4 gigabytes or 8 gigabytes flash. It had an accelerometer for screen rotation, a proximity sensor for detecting when the phone was up against your face, and an ambient light sensor for screen brightness. The pin connector for powering the device was the same one used on the iPod and also allowed for a connection to iTunes and your computer. The standout feature, at least on the day of the announcement, was the one that most of us could care less about today, visual voicemail. But there were serious omissions as well. The original iPhone had no GPS. You couldn't remove the battery. You couldn't add additional storage if you wanted to. And the phone took photos, but no video. A decade on, there are three especially glaring downsides to the original device. And the first was the price. The two versions of the iPhone retailed at $499 for the 4GB version and $599 for the 8GB model, on contract. There was no carrier subsidy. Before or since... Apple and its apologists have been loath to admit that this high pricing was a mistake. In the first quarter that it was on sale, the iPhone sold 1.5 million units. But there's no telling how many more could have sold had the price been in line with other phones on the market. 
a mere few months after the phone actually went on sale, the original AT&T contract was renegotiated. Now, AT&T would buy the iPhone directly from Apple, and consumers would receive a subsidy that would bring the price more in line with industry standards. A second big downside was that even though the iPhone introduced the promise of a cell phone that could deliver a genuine web browsing experience, it was still on the second-generation Edge network. AT&T was still in the process of building out its 3G network, so for that first-generation phone, users had to make do with snail-like browsing speeds. A big reason for this was the fact that 3G chips were not actually available at the time that development of the phone had begun. But the fact also is that this was probably a purposeful hedge made by AT&T and Apple. Both companies knew that they weren't quite ready for the amount of bandwidth that iPhone users would soon be hoovering up. The decision to stick with Edge was probably a decision to play for time. If anything, the iPhone was launched onto AT&T's network about 18 months too early. The network couldn't handle the surge in data usage, as early iPhone users could grumblingly attest to, but these early adopters were intended to be sacrificial lambs until the infrastructure could catch up. Finally, and most importantly, people tend to forget that the original iPhone launched without the App Store. Most of us are now used to using our phones as a sort of utility belt of tools, with apps allowing us to do any number of things that standalone devices used to be required for. The original iPhone lacked the second truly revolutionary innovation that would kickstart the smartphone era. The original App Store-less iPhone was very much Steve Jobs' platonic ideal of a closed and curated computing system. And for a long time, Jobs stuck to his guns, refusing to let outside developers work with the iPhone. In 2007, Jobs told developers, quote, The full Safari engine is inside the iPhone. And so you can write amazing Web 2.0 and Ajax apps that look exactly and behave exactly like apps on the iPhone. And guess what? There's no SDK that you need. You've got everything you need if you know how to write apps using the most modern web standards to write amazing apps for the iPhone today. So, developers, we think we've got a very sweet story for you. You can begin building your iPhone apps today. Later, Jobs would tell John Markoff of the New York Times, quote, You don't want a phone to be like a PC. The last thing you want is to have loaded three apps on your phone, and then you go to make a call, and it doesn't work anymore. These are more like iPods than they're like computers. But again, key executives inside Apple badgered Jobs until he changed his mind. Eddie Q would remember Jobs' capitulation on the subject of an app store and third-party development, saying, quote, Oh, hell, just go for it and leave me alone. Within months, Jobs, of course, would be singing the praises of the app store, and as with the notion of multi-touch, once Jobs came around, he could really become an idea's biggest cheerleader once he had signed on with it. With the second iPhone, the iPhone 3G, all of these problems would be solved. The 3G retailed for $199 for the 8 gigabyte model, 
after subsidy, and $299 for the 16-gigabyte model. It had 3G wireless speeds. It had the App Store. As Jean-Louis Gasset would say later, quote, It was only then that the iPhone was truly finished, that it had all its basics, all its organs. It needed to grow up, to muscle up, but it was complete, as a child is complete. At the time of this recording, more than 1 billion iPhones have been sold worldwide. Those are impressive numbers, of course, super impressive, but numbers really can't tell the whole story of the iPhone's impact on the world. Perhaps in cases like this, anecdotal examples are probably more illustrative. So let me give you one. If I had told you in 2007 that soon your mother would one day carry a smartphone and use it on an hourly basis, would you have believed me? Would Facebook be at a billion users today if the iPhone hadn't presented the perfect vehicle for both social media consumption and production? And if not for the iPhone kickstarting the smartphone revolution, whither Snapchat or Twitter, much less Uber? If not for the iPhone, I would posit that the mobile revolution would probably have kicked off at least five years later. With 10 years of perspective, perhaps the most remarkable thing when we look back on the launch of the iPhone is the fact that for all of its retrospective imperfections, the original model was in fact so conceptually perfect, right out of the gate. Automobiles, as an example, had to evolve for almost 40 years before they settled into the standard configuration that we are still familiar with almost a century later. But on their first attempt, the team at Apple managed to stumble across the perfect form factor, the perfect incarnation of the modern smartphone. Smartphones had existed for several years previous to the iPhone, but the standard form of the smartphone as we know it today, that physical keyboardless single slab of a screen, that black mirror that is both a reflection of and a conduit for all of our hopes and desires, they nailed it on the first try. And that's really quite remarkable. Whatever you might think about the subsequent lawsuits and charges of copycatting, there's a very good reason why everyone in the industry quickly moved towards the paradigm that the iPhone pioneered. The bottom line is, the first iPhone marks a clear delineation in technological eras. It's not just that nearly every adult in the developed world now has a smartphone in their pocket. It's that every adult in the developed world now has a computer in their pocket. If you look at the overall penetration of daily computer usage before the smartphone era, a large percentage of humanity simply didn't use computers on a daily basis, especially in the developing world. The smartphone is rapidly allowing every adult human access to computing and access to the internet on a daily basis. For more than 30 years of the PC era, visionaries were dreaming of something like this, dreaming of empowering humans with computers. Those guys at the homebrew computer club in the 70s imagined a day when everybody had a personal computer that they could call their own. Microsoft's motto was, for years, famously, a computer on every desk and in every home. 
The dream of ubiquitous computing is finally rapidly coming to pass, and that is because of the smartphone. And the iPhone was the first smartphone to make smartphones matter. In 1960, a computer visionary by the name of J.C.R. Licklider published one of the seminal papers in the history of computer science. It was called Man-Computer Symbiosis. In it, Licklider argued that while artificial intelligence and sentient computers were probably inevitable in the long run, in the short term, there would probably be an extended period of time where humans and computers would coexist, as he said, symbiotically. Let me quote directly from the paper. In short, it seems worthwhile to avoid argument with other enthusiasts for artificial intelligence by conceding dominance in the distant future of cerebation to machines alone. There will nevertheless be a fairly long interim during which the main intellectual advances will be made by men and computers working together in intimate association. The hope is that in not too many years, human brains and computing machines will be coupled together very tightly, and that the resulting partnership will think as no human brain has ever thought and process data in a way not approached by the information handling machines we know today. End quote. Well, today, we all use our smartphones to navigate nearly every minute of our modern lives. Every time you see someone with their head down, totally lost in their phone, it's worth realizing that the truly personal computer revolution came in the form of a phone. Of course, it wasn't just a phone, it was a tiny supercomputer. And so, the man-computer symbiosis that Licklider imagined all those years ago is finally now coming to pass. And that is the ultimate legacy of the very first iPhone. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, and my personal Twitter is at brianmcc. Thanks for listening.